This is Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace. The podcast that knows, yes, your workplace is sexist. Even if you've hardly been at your workplace for the last 17 months. No, for real. I'm Eula Scott Bino. I'm Jeannie Yandel. And if you want to support the show, one, we thank you. And two, become a patron at patreon.com slash BTSW. So this episode is with a guest we really, really love talking to. Mm -hmm. So we are bringing you our whole entire conversation with her. (laughs) It's kind of a long episode. (laughs) It's worth it. Uh, Yeah, I think so too. Um, We recorded this episode earlier this year and we talked about something we are all still grappling with, like we mentioned in our previous episode, everything and everyone we've lost because of COVID. We lost over half a million Americans to COVID. It is a level and a magnitude of loss that that we actually are not able to process. And as the numbers get bigger, our ability to have like empathy and real understanding for all that's been lost goes down. I'm so honored to introduce our guest. Her name is Marissa Renee Lee. She's an entrepreneur, She's worked on the My Brother's Keeper Alliance for the Obama administration, no big. And she's writing a book called Grief is Love. It's about how to have a joyful life after suffering a significant loss. So we're going to jump in. Hi, Marissa. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is great. Oh, it's, we're really excited about it. So we, uh, you might be wondering, like, why, why are you guys talking about grief on a show about, you know, right. workplace sexism? Do they overlap? How do they overlap? And the truth is they overlap like crazy because uh, human beings be going to work and human beings be dying. And um, <laughs> that's so sad. And uh, this is me introducing to you that we have a lot of new grief, Jeannie and I, that we're low-key calling you to counsel us through, <laughs> low-key calling you to uh, guide us through, but also because we're aware that we have to return to the workplace full on someday. And we really want to yeah. know how. So, um I can start just because it feels so weird to say it, but um, my husband passed away March 28th of last year and my mother passed away uh, July 25th of last year, 24th, something like that. And um, man, the grief is just real heavy and it kind of comes and goes from day to day. And where I think I'm going to get something done sometimes, I don't. And I've been showing myself a lot of grace like a lot of grace. Like, am I supposed to be moving right now? Yes. Have I packed a box? <laughs> no. Are the movers coming in two to three days? Yes. Will it get done? Sure. Because, you know, the universe will pull it all together. But um, as I'm experiencing this, I'm sitting in so much gratitude for not being in the workplace. And then I'm um, sitting in a lot of fear, I guess, for how to adjust back to it when that expectation is going to come my way. All right. That's Eula's grief story. Jeannie's got one too. <laughs> Jesus, what are you guys doing to me? I should have brought a cocktail for this one. I know, we really should have. Yeah, you're not wrong. I'm going to pretend that my water is something a little stronger. Um, Yeah, Yeah. so um, my my Aunt Lolo passed away um, this summer. Um, She was sort of one of the... um, you heard stories in sort of the first part of the pandemic about hospitals triaging who they could and couldn't see. Um, and so that was the case with with my aunt. Um, you know, she was able to die at home surrounded by her kids, which I'm really glad for. Um, you know, and I'm I'm from Chicago. Um, I have a big extended family. We haven't been able to gather to sort of mourn her together, which feels really odd. Um, yeah. You know, and I work in a newsroom. And I have off and on been part of the COVID coverage here in the King County region, here in the Seattle region. Uh, I'm currently the editor for the COVID team. I run the COVID team. And so the amount of um, of loss I'm feeling just for um, hearing about people who are still very sick, who are having a difficult time finding a vaccine, um, for watching the reporters who have been covering this for the last year, try and deal with, you know, their own exhaustion and feeling like, you know, they can't step away because it's such an important thing to cover. Um, I don't, it's, it's weird. I don't really know what the word is for that feeling, but it feels a lot like grief. 
And so that's sort of that's sort of where I am. That's that's my grief story, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lord. Okay. So first, I just I just want to acknowledge both of your stories. You know, thank you for sharing them. I think I think it's important for all of us to be having these conversations, you know, at this point, not including the people who we lost, you know, under normal circumstances last year. In the United States, we lost over half a million Americans to COVID. And it like it it is it is a a, a level and a magnitude of loss that, that we actually are not able to process at the individual level. Like there is a psychological response called psychic numbing. And as the numbers mm. get bigger, our ability to have like empathy and real understanding for all that's been lost goes down, yeah. unfortunately. You know, it's, it's a part of how we protect ourselves, yeah. um, which is to say that like sharing these individual stories, you know, Eula, I don't know... Forget packing. You know, we can find somebody to come put your stuff in boxes. Like, don't even worry about that. I'm like, how are you even standing upright having lost a spouse and a parent in the middle of a fucking pandemic? Like, I just, I I have no idea. And Jeannie, the media stuff is real. You know, we all remember, I, I can't think of her name, but the CNN reporter who was in the parking lot you know, bearing witness to these hospital parking lot drive-by funerals. And she just, it was just too much. Like she just lost it. And and like, that is okay. You know, like that is a sign that you are still a human being. And in my case, I lost my mom uh, 13 years ago and then found out, you know, years later that as I was helping to care for her and dealing with that early grief, I lost my fertility my husband and I then lost a uh, pregnancy in 2019 and I was still both, you know, grieving that loss and dealing with some physical consequences of that loss when the pandemic hit. He works in public health. I work on grief and racism. So it was just an explosion of everything. And then in October, my, yeah, it's too much. My 35 year old cousin uh, died from oh, COVID. You know, she left behind a one and a half year old a 12 year old. And I think her eldest was like 16. And this aunt of mine, that's the third child that she's lost. And, and it's mm-hmm. just, it's all just too much. too much. And, and again, this piece that you shared Jeannie about your extended family in Chicago and your aunt and just not being able to gather and mourn together. Like that is a whole other thing to grieve. You know, the, the inability to be with the people who you love, who also loved this person who's no longer with us and just share memories and comfort each other and tell jokes and, you know, stay up too late, getting ready for funeral stuff or having a drink or eating a snack or whatever. Like that is real, you know, having to, and now that you was, I'm like, I'm going to start breaking down, but having to get on the phone with my aunt, who's like my mom's baby sister. And all she wanted was for my other aunt to be there Mm. with her and having to say I don't think we can do that because it's a pandemic and like we actually can't do that it was awful like it was just (sighs) miserable um so yeah human beings are human and all of these feelings are normal and you know my goal with my grief work is to not you know, identify as a grief expert. Like, I just, I don't believe in that. I know if my husband were to drop dead tomorrow, I would forget every lesson I've learned in the last 13 years. I focus on, I mean, for real, I just, I, you know, I would be on the floor half dead myself. I focus on advocacy. And the big thing that I just feel really strongly about advocating for right now is redefining grief. Because I think if we change how we define it, it will also enable us to better support people as they're moving through it and support ourselves, frankly. And so when, you know, when I was grieving the loss of my mom, I had this idea in my head of these stages and timelines and, you know, the funeral was going to be the pinnacle of my grief. And, you know, I, I just, I had all of these ideas that were wrong. You know, 13 years later, I know that grief has frankly very little to do with what happens immediately after someone dies. Mm -hmm. And it is a lived experience that you have to move through for the rest of your life. Like it is literally the experience of 
learning how to live your life in the midst of a significant loss, period. So like that is what I'm advocating for because if we can understand that, we can then figure out, okay, so like what does it look like to support people back in the workplace who've lost loved ones or, you know, lost other things as a result of this pandemic? You know, what does it mean to show up for someone as their child continues to grow up when they've lost their partner? You know, what what might it look like for your family, Jeannie, to gather for your aunt's birthday this summer? You know, what whatever. Um, so yeah, those are that's my grief story and kind of my two cents. Wow. I just need to I know. Gonna yeah, we're going to walk through that. But for, <laughs> I just something that really struck me about the way you talked about your mom's passing and, and how you had this idea of sort of stages and the funeral was going to be the pinnacle. Like it kind of sounds like you tried to project manage your grief over your mother's passing, which as like a project <laughs> manager person myself, I really like that really yes. resonated yes. with me. But like. <laughs> What did you learn from the attempt to project manage your grief over your mother's passing? (laughs) That is hilarious because that is exactly what I did. So I'm glad you read into that because you are right. (laughs) I had a spreadsheet. I had all of these to-do lists. You know, I I am the person, I literally get paid in my, you know, other part of my life and my consulting business to help people figure out how they're going to get big things done. You know, they say, I have this idea, I have this new project, new initiative, new program. And I say, okay, let's let's make a plan. You know, like, let me, let me figure out what the different component parts are, what resources are needed to achieve these various pieces, how long it's gonna take, how much it's gonna cost, et cetera. And that's what I tried to do in advance of my mom's death. Like, okay, so there's the practical physical stuff, like, where does she want to die? What kind of a funeral does she want to have? Does she want to be buried versus cremated? What does she want to wear? Who does she want to give stuff away to? Then there is like, you know, there was like a legal and insurance and, you know, what's going to come after death for us piece to it. And then I had this piece on my to-do list. And I, I look back at these notebooks that I had when I was 24 and 25 years old. And I'm like, oh my God, you were a fucking mess. I had a category that I called intangibles. You know, what does she see as my greatest strengths? What are the things that she wants to make sure that I remember? What recipes does she want to like ensure that I write down that are still in her head? You know, all this. And I'm like, you really thought that you could project manage death and you can't. And I know, you know, for me, the way that I showed up, it it was rooted in love, but it was also rooted in fear. You know, like fear of getting it wrong, you know, fear of not showing up and supporting her the way that I wanted to, fear of all of the things that I was going to miss on the other side that you can't even Mm. fucking predict. So um, it didn't work. It was, elements of it were practically (laughs) useful. You don't say. (laughs) It didn't, it didn't work. It did not prepare me for my grief in any way. And it's so painful to look back on like the level of detail and the insanity but it is, you know, it is worth people practically preparing for death if you are dealing with a terminal illness, of course. But, like, you cannot prepare for grief. You can't project manage it. Mm. It sucks. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. So, lesson <laughs> one, can't do it. <laughs> yeah. You can't do it. It's not possible. It's not possible. Sorry. So, um, oh, man. So, it sounds like you started thinking about grief for the first time even before your mom passed. Was she? What was she... What she passed from? How long did you know? Yeah, so she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was a teenager. And then right as I was graduating from college, she was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. So like the combination of the, you know, advanced cancer and the MS, I was just like, there's no way you make it out of this. You know, I was never praying that she would be, you know, fully healed. I was more like, I hope that I can be there when she dies so that I can make sure she leaves this world on her terms. Um, so she was, she was sick with the cancer for about three years before she died. Mm, My dad too. Um, did you, were you working at the time? Was she working at the time? Yeah. So my mom worked when I was a kid, but then when she got sick with the MS, she was never able to work again. I was working. I took a year off, about a year off after I graduated college, just to help her and my dad 
project manage the illness part of it, which was a legitimate thing. Um, you know, my father is a wonderful, loving, lovely person. He's also like a teenage boy. And so <laughs> I was like, like she you might kill man. him. Yeah. I mean, it was just I, like the number of times I seriously was like, I, I actually might fucking kill you. Um, during that process, it was, it was a lot. And so I spent the year at home, like helping them navigate it. And then I took a job on Wall Street during what ended mm. up being the greatest financial crisis, um, with the exception of the one that we're living through right now, I suppose, and uh, started a nonprofit because I like I get frenetic anxiety when things are hard. You know, like that is my response to stress. Do I also think I was battling depression? Yes, but I couldn't sleep and I needed to be productive. You know, the project management thing, again, like I can't save my mom, but can I start a nonprofit that throws parties and raises money to fight breast cancer to save other people's moms? Yeah, I can, I can fucking do that. Um, mm -hmm. So it was wild. It was wild. Did you, was there anywhere in there that you rested? No, not really. No. Oh, okay. No, it was, it was, you know, working on a banking platform and toward the end, you know, I, I had told the bank actually, I need to resign. You know, my mom's no longer undergoing active treatment. We were dealing with a high pressure, like compliance situation. I was like, I can't do this and be there for her. And they were like, no, we're not going to let you resign. Like, it's okay. We'll work with you. I know. I know. An old conservative, very white wow. investment bank. I know it's, it's, it's really hard to believe. It's, it's, it's when phenomenal says when that, I look back. When someone it. says that to you, what are your, what is your face saying back to them? <laughs> I think I was like, are you sure? You know, like I was just so shocked. I was also worn out, exhausted, you know, 24 years old. My mom just stopped undergoing active treatment. It was like right after our last Christmas. You know, I was, mm. I was just, I was, I was a mess. I was a mess. But they were like, yes, you're not resigning. So I would split my time, you know, be in the city three days a week, be at my parents' house the other four days a week, you know, try and catch the dry cleaners in between and then I wanted to have fun. You know, I was early 20s living in New York, trying to like live the sex in the city lifestyle. So my form of rest back then, I feel like, you know, was like going to a bar in the West Village with my girlfriends or hosting one of our charity parties with cute boys. Like it wasn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't understand the real concept of rest back then. Marissa, when we first started talking, you also mentioned the pregnancy loss that you went through in 2019 um as part of your grief story um was was going through that grief process any different I mean were you able to apply any of the lessons you learned what was was it different at all that's a great question uh yes it was very different in a lot of ways um you know first of all I I feel like one of the main things that I learned from grieving the loss of my mom was that I kept a lot of things to myself, you know, for a variety of reasons, I'm sure. One of them just being this, this feeling of judgment slash shame that I feel like I experienced, you know, grieving for too long or, you know, not grieving in the right way or, you know, the way you describe grief as this like up and down, you know, one day you're like, oh, I'm like so productive. I'm going to get all these things done. And then two hours later, you're still on the couch. Like I just, I couldn't figure it out. And I really, really, really struggled. And so when, you know, when we got the call, um, initially I was in denial. Um, you know, I, this is so crazy saying it out loud, but I sincerely believed that I was pregnant, our fertility specialist was wrong, and that they had mixed up my blood work with this other poor woman. Like literally was like, oh my gosh, this like poor mm. woman. So we get, you know, we get the call from the fertility specialist. My husband immediately is like crying, like, oh my God, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm just gonna put on my flip-flops and go to Walgreens and get an at-home pregnancy test. <laughs> so I bought two. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, and they were both um, yeah. negative. And I was like, what the fuck? How is this actually possible? And so then I started to grieve. But the interesting or, you know, I guess, unfortunate thing about pregnancy loss and miscarriage is I felt like my grief was put on pause 
when all of the physical stuff started to take over. So like that was the first thing that was different to me. Like, oh, I have to go through a physical response and I'm carrying all of this emotional stuff, but I don't feel like I can focus on it because I'm so sick. And so that was a big thing. And then I just, I said, you know what? Like, fuck this. Like, I'm going to tell everybody because that will make me feel less burdened, especially because I know that it's going to take me a while to move through this, given I still am physically sick and I haven't even processed it all emotionally. And like, what are we going to do next? You know, I just, I was like all of these question marks and just really, really struggled. And so, you know, I told my clients, I told my friends, everybody on Instagram knew I wrote an article about it because I just felt like externalizing it would help me feel better and it would let me be more honest with people. You know, like if it's a Friday afternoon and I'm feeling really depressed and I have a call that is not actually that important, like, can I just tell them like, I'm not feeling up to it and not join, you know, like, and being honest gave me that kind of freedom. So yeah, it was, it was very different. It was also my first experience grieving the same thing in like such close proximity to somebody else. You know, the way that my husband grieved this loss and the way that I grieved it, very different. And we just, we just had to call it out over and over again and be honest about, you know, what he needed, what I needed, where we were, and just mindful of giving each other the space that we need. And also, frankly, sometimes being okay with not being able to show up fully for one another. You're just at capacity. Um, so yeah, those were, it was, they were some hard won lessons. Oh man. Okay. I, I, I want to put down my microphone and like applaud the fact that you decided you were going to be open with everybody about that um that's it's incredibly validated yeah honest to god right i mean i eula already knows this um but um i i had a miscarriage before i had my daughter and i had a moment where somebody said to me um in my family oh well i'm not going to tell anybody else because this is this this is this is your thing and i got so mad at the idea yeah. that i was supposed to do this by myself yeah no, um that. that i i had the same fucking response and i told everybody yep like i just you know people in the lunchroom how are you doing well i'm i'm going through a miscarriage right like i just you know and i it, and you were 100% right that idea that like it is a physical process that you have to go through so you can't quite you can't deal with the emotional stuff until that part is over. And because people were so quiet about it, I didn't know no. what the physical process was supposed to be like. Oh, I mean, God, and it can be horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, happily, because I, I had that fuck it response too, I learned from women who I talked to. Yeah. Like that, you know, how hard it is physically on you. Um, so, yeah, I just all of that to say, I'm so goddamn glad you had that fucking response. <laughs> I said, you're not, you can't carry this in the same way that you carried the loss of your mom. Like it'll yep. destroy you. Like, yeah. and, like you just, you can't do it. You can't do it. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, what do you think you learned from, from that process? So the sharing piece, I learned a few things. First of all, there are way, way more people quietly carrying some form of infertility, pregnancy loss, you know, infant loss, et cetera, grief than you can ever imagine. Like I was honest to God, I was overwhelmed when I shared, you know, around the time that it happened. And then I shared again, um, in an article that came out mother's day last year. Like I was so overwhelmed that it, it just made me weep. You know, like I felt like Okay, so not only am I not alone, but what is wrong with society or culture? You know, I don't even know what to call it, that all of these people are just hiding all of this pain and just carrying it around like that can't be healthy. And then there's also this added layer that often comes up when I share this stuff as a woman of color. You know, people are like, oh, my God, you know, I was the only black person at my fertility clinic. Like, oh, my God, I have never felt comfortable talking about this stuff because I don't know other black women or women of color who talk about these things. And I'm like, yeah, we need to put that to bed. Like, I am not 
you, I think, I think we lose a lot, particularly as black women by just suffering in silence and like carrying pain silently. Like, I don't think that serves anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting hearing you guys talk about miscarriages just because I'm a doula and a childbirth educator. And, but I, you know, I'm on the other side of that. So often people are in the middle of success when that happens. But um, the first time I ever heard anyone talk about a miscarriage, I was getting my hair done in Boston and a, the male woman came in to drop off the mail and the owner was doing my hair and she hands her. So she comes to the back of the salon to give her the mail and she hands it to her and the owner says, well, where's this baby? You know, I'm so happy to see you kind of thing. And she said, the baby didn't make it. And she just left. And I was just. I just kind of sat there for a while and sat in it and, you know, people talked about it, I think maybe as she left, but I remember sitting there long enough to think to, to like come to my own conclusion that, um, this woman has to do this every single place she goes on her route. Yeah. And that that was like, you know, her introduction back into the workplace. And, um, God, that's heartbreaking. I remember thinking how brave it was for her to say that, how weird it was for her to say that, how inappropriate it was for me to overhear it. Like all of those things came to mind and, um, but it never left me, you know, that thought never left me. So hearing you guys speak about it, I just think about, yeah, you know, there's just no easy way through it. Um, were you working at the time, Marissa? Of the pregnancy loss? Yeah. I was on a call with a client when I saw like the doctor's office number. Um, and I didn't even say anything. So I'm like, oh, she'll get it. Cause I assumed I was going to be texting her later being like, and by the way, you know, we're pregnant and clicked over and he started talking and immediately I was like, wait, let me get Matt. I don't, I don't like, I don't know where this is going, but I don't want to hear it by myself. Um, so yeah, I was, I was very much in the middle of a work day when it happened and you know, everybody was like, take as much time as you need. Like you can ignore all of us and and you know it's my business so like I can ignore people but only for a certain period of time because I also need to pay the mortgage um but they were you know they were really compassionate and supportive and kind um yeah and understanding I no no complaints they they were great about it but I think part of it was you know this is a woman too who was my main client um and she's had a bunch of friends go through similar stuff and she just said, you know, like, this is, this is, this is serious. You know, I remember at one point her saying like, this is serious. And I was like, yeah, this is serious. You know, like, like, even if you don't totally get it and, you know, she's got two kids of her own, she hasn't gone through that experience as far as I know. In fact, she said like, this is serious. I was like, oh, thanks. Yeah. Appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Did you get rest in 2019? Did I get rest in 2019? Um, yes. It, frankly, in large part because I I felt like I had to be really good about taking care of myself leading up to this process. So it was very much framed around trying to create life. And then when it didn't happen, I was just so sick for many months that I didn't have a choice. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I got... I got a lot of rest and I got a lot of rest in 2020 because some of the health stuff was like underlying and continued to linger. And it's something I have to continue to deal with today. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I have changed my personal care routines dramatically. Mm. How did you survive all of that? <laughs> That's a great question. How did I survive? I mean, I have a phenomenal network and I network is like not a strong enough word. Like, I'll say extended family. You know, I have 11 roommates from college, which is absurd, but true. And they're almost all type A. Not at the same time. Um, (laughs) Well, at the end, yes, we all, but like we, it was like adjoining suites. So it's not like we were all just in one room having a slumber party every night. (laughs) Although that sounds awesome. And when they hear that, they're going to want to do that. Um, But yeah, I had 11 roommates from college. I have a really strong like high school crew. You know, my dad didn't really know what to do, but he managed to send chocolates from the hometown shop. I have an amazing partner. You know, I, I want to kill him sometimes, but he's he's pretty phenomenal and has gotten really good over the years at like being a grief partner because he's had to mm. from, you know, the loss of my mom. Um, 
And I just, you know, I just kept telling myself, like, this is temporary. Like, it can't always be this bad. And that is what I would say to someone who's going through the early stages of grief. Like, Eula, from my perspective, you're still in the early stages. Like, year one is, like, 60 seconds, basically. Like, it won't always yeah. be this bad. Like, it's always going to be there. Oh, yeah. I mean... I promise. I lost my dad when I was 18, so... Jesus, Eula. <laughs> Everybody's going to do it. I, I said. know, but that doesn't and mean I it's should, easy. I, if it helps at all... No, but I'm a Scorpio. I don't know if if you know, but that's this is my this is what I was built for. Oh, you know the Scorpio. If you pull out like tarot cards, death death is a Scorpio scar card. Oh, you know, November is October. November is when everything in the world is dying. Oh my God, um, I never thought about that. <laughs> Holy shit! Okay, yeah. So it's I um I'm low key I'm low key built for it. Like like for real for oh. real. Uh, because every joke ends with someone dying or every comedy ends with like, you know, dark humor is my thing. And so I um, I would say for when I lost my dad at 18, I ran like I like I ran for a couple of years, um, maybe like maybe 17. <laughs> and then uh, when Marvin died, I kind of sat down a little bit and the pandemic forced me to sit alone because yeah. uh, uh, I don't live near family oh. or friends. And I. Uh, you know, there was loneliness in that, but there really wasn't, Marissa. You know, the the weird part is it allowed for me to focus and think and process and see all these really beautiful uh, signs that Marvin sent. Yes. To be really present with him. It was a real blessing for that. And um, I've sat in gratitude because with my, both Marvin and my dad are like uh, people. You know what I mean? Where you like, if you're in Seattle and you say like Tyree Scott is like, yeah, we know Tyree Scott if, if back in his day, I should say. And with Marvin, it's like that in Boston. You just know who he is. And um, so when my dad passed away, uh, the house was, there were too many people in our house when he passed. Yes. If that makes yes. sense. And my mom left. You know, it's funny because I, I for, what we block out is interesting because years later, someone told me that my mom left after my dad died. And I was like, what do you mean? Where'd she go? And they were like, she went to California for two weeks. And I was like, I don't remember that at all. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but so my point is, I was the only person in the house for two weeks with, with after my dad died in our home because wow. my brother wasn't there. My mom wasn't there. I don't know who was home with me. But at the same time, I'm sure I woke up every day and someone was in the kitchen before. Yeah. That's my point. Yeah. So with my with Marvin's passing, there was a real beauty in that there was no one here every day. People called and I still got a lot of connection with people, but I didn't have to fake myself for every single person through the door mm. and i didn't have to leave because people kept coming yeah you know that's something that happened when my dad died people kept coming it was like this weird thing where i'd be like beverly's not here and they'd be like i know i just wanted to be here with you and i'd be like i'm not staying yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they'd be like well i'll stay and i'll be like well then you can stay i i have to go to work um you know i worked at a burger place at the time but um I know I didn't really grieve. I didn't sit. I didn't rest. None of that happened with my dad. I've truly ran away from the thought. My dad was such a pillar that I really just didn't want to have the same conversation so many times with people. People explaining to me who they had lost. Oh, gosh. You know, and me having explained back and me having to be an 18 year old with the best listening ear, mm. right? Like, literally, having to that's console my grown men and grown women. <laughs> <laughs> but they expect it, right? You know, your for dad. For those of you who are listening, dad, Marissa just extended her middle finger. <laughs> in a common expression. Yes. No, it's fine. <laughs> yes. No, it's true. But, you know, but I would say that the blessing in Marvin's passing is that I get a better idea now of how how far we go when we die. Mm. And I really get that uh, the conscious, the thing that is thinking before I speak, sticks. Yes. Sticks and stays real close by. And that the physical body is, is moved and, you know, altered and really, you know, burned to a crisp at this point. But um, but the conscious is, is clearly present. Marvin speaks in uh, in conversation with me. If I speak to him, he responds. If uh, Liv, he comes to Livy in dreams, we both have altars. Livy's my our son. We both have altars. Livy and I, where we're able to uh, you know feed him and interact with him and engage with him. And um, I don't know, Marvin. What else? <laughs> it's not as bad as you thought it would be. Yeah, he said it's all it's all really good. He went to a friend of ours in a dream and said, you know, it's way better than he thought it would be. Oh, he came man. to, you know, I had a reading and he said, you know, you was right about all this stuff because he's a Sagittarius. He don't believe in none of it. <laughs> so he came, though, in a reading and said, it's all true. She's right. You know, you was right. So I have real, you know, 
I'm very consoled by that. And I'm consoled by the idea that I get to go at some point too, which I know sounds like, oh, are you trying to leave? And that's no. not the truth. That's not the truth at all. The truth is I'm just consoled in the fact that when I leave, I'm going somewhere cute. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Versus, uh, yeah, versus, you know, somewhere that could be really hard and heavy. And um, I'm just really grateful for the way I've been able to grieve. But then on the other hand, I'm really sad for people who are doing this for the first time oh, alone. Oh, God. Uh, just because I just I get it, you know I get how uh, how the the road doesn't end. Yeah. You know I I really do understand how like because with my dad's grief, when I tell people seventeen years, they fall over. Like you know what I mean? Like everyone just kind of falls over still. Mm-hmm. And um and we, you know, have all never healed the right way, if that makes sense. But the healing will only happen when we're together. Blah, 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 blah. Mm. And it's hard to get together. It's the hardest thing to do is to get together and talk about grief. Because you feel like you're making everybody else sad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's and my big question. Oh, yeah. Go, go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I guess, I mean, that does make, like, one of the things I wanted to ask is, like, well, why are we so bad at this? Like, why are we so bad at talking about grief and just accepting it? Yeah, I'll be amazed if you ever if you have an answer for that, because I don't know if anybody does. But like, why are we so bad at this? So I think part of it is a lot of a lot of people, you know, to some extent, all of us like live in fear and like carry a lot of fear. And I think conversations about death make people uncomfortable because it forces you to acknowledge just how fragile and vulnerable and impermanent like you really are as a human being you know like I I I think it's hard for people to really get okay with that if they haven't had their own you know close encounter with grief because for us like we've had to figure it out you know we've had to make a way we've had to make it make sense you know you I'm with you my mom lives in the water and it's so funny because I've known for such a long time that she is in the water, but I've never connected it to the fact that I'm pretty sure we're both Aquariuses, uh, me and my mom. Mm. So like uh, only until you said the thing and I'm like, oh my God, wow, that's crazy. Scorpio. Yeah. Wow. Um, so thank you for that. That is a gift. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like she's here. I did an interview once with um, Trayvon Martin's mother and she talked about how her love for her son is in the present tense and and she knows Mm. that he loves her as much if not more today than he did you know when he died um and so like we've you know like we've had to figure out those things the hard way and I mean my mom told me before she died when we were going through the spreadsheet and figuring out who to give things to and we're both you know, I think generous people. So it's not like I was like, oh, no, mom, don't give that to so-and-so because I want it. It was like, oh, you know, we want to make sure this person gets something and that person gets something and whatever. And she was like, you know, are you sure you're okay with me giving away so much stuff to other people? And I was like, honestly, yes. Like, I, sw- I swear to you, I am. I'm totally okay with it. And she said, good, because like, I will live here. And for listeners, since this is a podcast, I am putting my hand on my heart. <laughs> So she's like, you don't have to worry about it. Like, I, I'm going to be here. And I was like, I know. And I didn't know then. But, like, I know now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a trip how once you get it, it's so clear. Yeah. So clear. It's almost kind of, it's like, it's like a sad, it's so sad and scary. But, you know, it's funny you say your mom was, I would say that what I, what I told my nephew the other day was, you know, when we die, we lose our bodies, but our conscious stays and we can control elements. Because we're still able, we're still, our body is nothing but elements. And so when we can get into them, we can handle it. And it's, and so um, it's, you say she's in the water. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I'm sure she's in the wind too, is my point. Yeah. Marvin and my family sends, they send breezes like crazy. It's hilarious <laughs> to be like, make this blow. <laughs> Coming up, Marissa talks about a battle tactic for dealing with grief in our lives and in our work, a tactic that just might come in the form of a federal policy and a tactic for supporting people you love who are grieving. That's after the break.
So Marissa, do you think that we've been conditioned to deal with grief and kind of rush through it? And it, you think that that feeling and necessity has roots in racism and sexism? That's a great question. Uh, I mean, I think pretty much everything in terms of our conditioning has roots in racism and sexism, you know, whether we want it to or not. It's it's just a matter of going back in time and seeing who who decided, you know, not only who is worthy, but what types of feelings and emotions are worthy and what we do with them. You know, I had a great AP US history teacher in high school, shout out to Mr. Malloy. And he forced us to constantly ask the question, like, who wrote it? You know, where does it come from? What is the origin? And I think generally speaking, and I'm guessing you ladies will agree, (laughs) women tend to do a better job, not a perfect job, but a better job at dealing with these just like really intense, hard, emotional things. And as a society, we don't, I I don't think we value emotion. I think one of the only like deep feelings that we tend to value and constantly are forced to talk about in this country is male rage, you know, but everything else I feel like is sidelined. So yes, I absolutely think there are racist and sexist roots. Mm Mm-hmm. Everything. Mm. I feel you. Do you know that, how to fix it? Yeah. Do I know how to fix it? I mean, I'm working on it. Do you know it. how to fix it? I'm working on it. I don't know if you heard, <laughs> but I have this new definition of grief. I'll say it again just to make sure everybody gets it. Grief is the repeated experience of learning how to live in the midst of a significant loss. So, like, stop trying to put people in buckets around timelines or telling people, you know, how to grieve or what the different stages are or whatever. No, it's it's a lot of feelings that are hard, that take time to work through, feelings that require acknowledgement, that require space, that you need to name and figure out what you're going to do with in order to live with them. You know, like there there's no getting over it. There's no, you know, magical cure. Like you should be sad if someone you love died. Like what, I mean, that's, that, that is a perfectly normal response. And you should, unfortunately, have to regularly reckon with that loss if it was a significant part of your life. You know, like you are now someone else's legacy. And, and there, like there needs to be mm. some reckoning with that. And it, it is a very emotional and, you know, long-term thing. Like, that's so I, I am sorry, but my, my big fix is getting people to talk about it, getting people to actually understand what grief is. And then, you know, putting on my advocacy policymaker hat, you know, thinking about what are some of the practical things that can help facilitate healing. You know, I'm constantly asking myself this question, like, how do we ensure that the things that can make living with grief easier are not a privilege? Mm. Okay. Can, can mm-hmm. you say a little more about that? What what would that look like? Yeah. Yeah. So it's things like I talked about my aunt earlier. You know, she's lost her third child, lost a child to cancer when he was 10 or 11 years old, lost a son. Uh, I think he was in his late teens to gun violence and then lost her eldest daughter in October to COVID. She'd never been for any kind of therapy. You know, like we still live in a Mm. world where therapy is something that is associated with people who have the means to pay for it. You know, people who know that they have really good health benefits and people who know how to even just navigate the process of looking for a therapist, which, you know, we know if you've been to therapy, it's kind of a pain in the ass. So (laughs) how do we, you know, like, how do we make sure that that tool is made more accessible to the people who need it most. Because when we talk about the over half a million Americans who are dead as a result of the coronavirus, we know that they are disproportionately poor and people of color. So like, what does it look like to make sure Mm -hmm. that those families have greater access to something like therapy? Or, you know, I've utilized Mm -hmm. acupuncture in the past. Like that is something that is, you know, still I think somewhat alternative for some people but has really helped me heal. And I think, Eula, I see you nodding your head. 
I think when you are deep in grief or deep in dealing with other heavy emotions, sometimes that like physical body work is helpful. So, you know, whether it's acupuncture or yoga or, you know, some sort of fitness membership when gyms open up again, you know, how do we make sure that these things that we know do help people move through grief aren't only accessible to people who can afford them? Mm. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how physical grief is. I mean, yeah. it's truly yes. amazing. When Marvin passed, like immediately I felt like a lot of relief, right? Just I think being married to a black man, I carry a lot of anxiety for him all the time. And so there was this weird feeling of like, well, he can't die now. He did. <laughs> and then, and then, um, that's so sad. Can we and pause then, on like, that you know, for a second? But it's true. And it's true. No, I know it's true. I know it's true. It's just like that is, that is like a daily grief experience that comes with you know having particularly black men as relatives that we just are accustomed to carrying like that is not okay sorry yeah don't apologize for pausing on that no no but i do i mean i'm used (laughs) and i've gotten used to it you know i got his i got a tracker on his phone i know where he's at all the time i know he's alive because the dot keeps moving you know what i mean and so i think the first day i had this real relief of like this is this is anxiety lifted and then of course I cried so much the first couple of days and then and then I had that day where you wake up and you feel like a bus hits you Mm. and you're like oh I've actually been ran over by someone and then people tell you like yeah that's what that's gonna happen you're gonna feel like you got hit by a bus like your whole body feels like ache and then um and now I don't feel uh that same kind of like ache and things like that but it still happens if that makes sense i still have moments where my, i can feel in my body how much it, it's taking me uh it's taking from me like i'll have times where i'll say oh i should just sit for a second and like sit in this feeling for a second before i have to move on from it because it doesn't just stick in my head and my eyes no. sometimes it gets all the way through to my no. toes you know it's um, hard it's real i mean yeah i'm just thinking but i appreciate you talking about this stuff because it's helping me you know sort through it all it's really helpful good, i'm glad um and from this and from your grief, you've not only are you helping me, you're helping other folks because you're, you're working on a federal grief policy. No, I. OK, Maybe. so here's my deal. Oh. As someone who. Me and Jesus, fingers crossed. I was like, <laughs> me too. So give us policy. My thing is this. And I, I have an article that is like looking for a home that I've been working on for a while. I, I understand the grief stuff. I also was a federal policymaker. And I, I am always thinking with a solutions lens and, you know, what can, now that we, praise the Lord, have not only a sane person in the White House, but a compassionate person who knows grief better than most of us, what would it look like for this administration to lean in on a set of grief policies? You know, what, what does that mean? Practically, what might that entail? And I mean, I've told them, friends who are working in the building, I'm like, hey, like, this is what I think needs to happen. And I'll help you guys run it, you know, after you get COVID and the economy under control. So <laughs> I've put it out there. Let's just keep mm. putting it out mm-hmm. there. I believe that they are going to tackle this because having spent time with, I keep wanting to call him vice president, with President Biden, <laughs> like his, his heart is, is real. Like when it comes to this grief stuff, he he gets it you know like i've seen him do things he's a scorpio i mean and he is like he is a feelings man um which is saying a lot for an old white guy but he he gets it so i i do believe that he is is. the person who is made for this moment um Mm. and i'm sure that they are going to enact a handful of grief policies (sighs) okay oh good so I was gonna, I was just saying he is a Scorpio, you know Biden was meant for grief too. I remember reading that when I when I saw that that was in his chart. I was like, no wonder everybody died God, that too. So <sighs> sad to say. So yeah. sad. I, I mean, the man has suffered. Um, mm. He gets it. So so much. Yeah. So what do you what do you if there was a grief policy, what do you think it would look like? So here, what do you think he would make it look like? What, since he's so close. Yeah. To it? So here is how we would approach these kinds of things when we were in the White House, because the executive branch, like actual power is limited. It's really about leadership and positioning 
and, um, you know, advocating for others to do things and then sharing the platform of the White House to get these things done. So, you know, when Trayvon Martin was murdered, the George Zimmerman verdict came out, Barack Obama then stood in the press briefing room and we were all like, what is about to happen? And he said, we're going to, going to use this building and our power to figure out how we can do more to help boys and young men of color. A couple months later, we launched the My Brother's Keeper initiative, which was solely focused on what the federal government could do and also what the private sector could do to support boys and young men of color. President Biden, at some point, is going to have to deliver a set of remarks that is focused on the millions of Americans who are grieving right now from COVID-19. He then, what uh, what I think he should do, you know, if I were over there writing the, the memo on this, he should then convene a council. You know, you bring in a bunch of external stakeholders who are experts in grief and grief policy and healing and reconciliation and all of the things that we need to actually move through this as a country. And you ask them to put together their list of recommendations for what the White House and what the federal government and also some ideas for what the private sector can do. And then you bring the CEOs in. But before you bring them in, you convince them to do things like revisit their bereavement policies. You know, death isn't just contained, or sorry, grief isn't solely contained in the two weeks following death. You know, can people shift their bereavement leave so that they can take a trip to honor their dead person's birthday? You know, can people be taking time Mm. off, you know, leading up to the death of someone? Because you know, like, it is so taxing being a caretaker and working full time and knowing that you're caring for someone who's going to die soon. Like, that is a lot. You know, what does mental health policy look like in this country. You know, President Biden talks about walking through the streets of Delaware after losing his wife and his child and hoping that someone would pick a fight with him because that's how much rage he felt over his grief. You know, like, like what, what does it look like to help people move through that? You know, like what sort of coverage are we providing through, you know, Obamacare and Affordable Care Act policies that ensure that people can have access to those mental health services, to services like acupuncture, to fitness credits as a part of their healthcare plans. You know, what what are these business leaders doing? Like there are so many things that can be done. Oh, and then we need to fund a fucking COVID memorial. Like there needs to be a place where all of these people who have lost loved ones can feel some kind of public acknowledgement because not only are there people dead, but they know that their person didn't necessarily have to die. Like the federal government needs to show some Mm. accountability for this magnitude of loss because A, we are not like mentally, literally able to deal with it ourselves. And B, there is some fault at the hands of our government. You know, not, not Joe Biden, just so we're clear, but still like it was, it was our government. Like we, we could have done better. You talked about, what it would look like to to bring CEOs and business leaders along, um, you know, during the implementation of a policy like this. But, you know, you talked about this yourself. You felt when you were 24, like you couldn't really be honest in your workplace about the depth of what you were going through. Right. Um, you know, and part of that could be our own personal conditioning <laughs> about what we're allowed to talk about and what we're not yeah. allowed to talk about. Part of it is also culture. Right. Like, you know, Sometimes there are workplace cultures where it's just you just don't talk about personal stuff like that. That's just how it is. So what would you want team leaders, CEOs, bosses to do to move their workplace culture along so that it's a safer place to be more honest about this stuff? There is so there is this tweet that went viral that you may have seen, I don't know, maybe like four or five months ago young woman, her mother died, and she was in the middle of finals in college. And she reached out to, you saw this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And she reached out to her professors and one professor said, tell me something about your mom and take as much time as you need. And the other professor said nothing. Mm. And I think you and gave her a 12 hour extension yeah on paper. like it was just it was so unbelievable but also so believable mm. and for me it's summarized as you know first of all don't be an asshole 
Like, just, just don't. Like, like everyone has so much suffering and grief that they're carrying from the last year, even if they didn't lose someone. So just have some compassion, have some empathy, and remember that the things that you are saying and doing as a leader are being watched. So, so why not lead by, you know, leaning into the fact that this has been and continues to be a very hard time for a lot of people and ask people what they need before they have to come to you and ask for it. Because at the end of the day, we're still in this space where people are definitely talking more about grief. You know, I'm getting asked to do more things in this grief space that we're all sitting in right now. But it's like not quite there from a broad cultural standpoint. So assume that the people who work for you don't feel comfortable necessarily asking for what they need. So as the leader, as the manager, as the head of a team, reach out first. Like you don't lose anything mm-hmm, mm-hmm. by saying, hey, you know, I just I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. I know there's a lot of grief that people are experiencing right now. Do you need anything? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. I love that. And I would say reach out with some routine. Yeah. You know, it's a trip to see how people kind of fall off with their schedule of how they yes. reach out. You know how early on it's like, we got to make sure you're alive. And then by like, you know, they've reached some pinnacle where they go, you're totally no. okay. Versus like, you know, this is no. never going to get okay. And then you kind of need these constant yeah. calls. Grievers know you save it in your phone. Like if somebody I care about is going through something difficult, it's just their name and it's on like repeat in my calendar. Mm. Because like, I'll, of course I'll forget. Mm-hmm. We're all super busy. Mm. But that doesn't mean that I don't care. Mm-hmm. So make it a reminder, just like I would remind myself to, you know, do my afternoon meditation or whatever. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. I really love that. How, what do you think about like, uh, you know, how we would show up for individuals? You know, having been through my own grief now, if I was if a coworker of mine were to experience grief, one, I would be like, go home, come back when you want. That would be the first yes. thing I would say. And then when they came back the next day, which they would do, I would be like, you shouldn't be here. Go home again. <laughs> and then when they did come back, I would say, all right, so we have rearranged, we've cleaned your whole office and we've, you know, added fresh flowers and everything and everyone is really excited and we people are going to be dropping by all day just to hear about your loss and your love. I love that. There's going to be no work on your desk for a couple of weeks. We're just going to have memory time with you for a while because we know that's what keeps people living. And then... I would want a therapist there. Oh, yeah. Hello. This is me walking back into work. Hey, everybody. I'm so- <laughs> oh, thank you. That's my therapist. That's for me. He's for me. Okay, let's go. And then we go into a room and we talk for a while. And then I come out and do maybe 45 minutes of actual work uh, before someone puts me into into an actual bed yes. for a nap. And like with a blank. I, I want to get tucked oh, all the way God, back Oh, my God. That sounds That's, so nice. That would be my dream. What what, what do you <laughs> Thank you for letting me dream that. What would, what, what would you What would you What's a more realistic way to support someone in the workplace? I mean, can we send this to all of Eula's uh, coworkers so that we know so that they know what she wants when she returns to work because I want to make sure she gets it. Yeah, this is including... my whole team. Oh, okay. <laughs> so who's going to tuck Eula in? Oh, I don't have no real job. I retired from real work. Oh no! I've retired. I've completely retired. Oh my god! Oh my god! I love it. I love it. Um, So, how to show up for the people? So, I think I think repetition is one of like to your earlier point is one of the most important parts of showing up for someone who is a colleague or a friend who's grieving. You know, continuing to ask, continuing to not just ask how they're doing, but like if you knew the person who they lost. Like when other people talk about their memories of my mom, you know, my childhood friends, my college friends, it's like a whole other level of feeling seen, you know, like, so, so put the reminder in your calendar, you know, Eula, March 28th is the anniversary of your husband's death. Like, I don't have your number, but if you give me your number, I will text you on the 28th. Like that, like, you know, like, like be intentional, be thoughtful. I still get gifts from people on the anniversary of my mom's death. 
you know, like a woman who I've only known through doing her podcast and being friends on Instagram sent flowers to my house in February. You know, like, like you can, you can, and you must keep showing up for your person who lost their person because that's a part of grief support. You know, just like grief is forever, the support piece is forever. Period. So show up, be kind. And then actually, I'm going to add one more thing because this happened for me a few times in 2020. Part of it was, you know, as I experienced the grief around George Floyd, uh, I was supposed to be wrapping up a client and working on, you know, an end of client report. And it was myself, another black woman and a white guy who's like my work husband, love him so much. And he sent an email and said, I've got the report. Like, I think you should proofread it just to make sure I haven't left anything out. But like, I'm going to do this. Like, there's just, this is too much. There's too much going on. You have Mm. too much. And like, I'm, I'm doing it. And he also knew, you know, because he knew me well, I'm always a little weird around Mother's Day. And it was like that time too, you know, the like dead mom, no baby yet. George Floyd, like it was just like, there's too much happening in the world Mm. right now. Um, So yeah, take, take some, take someone's work, like take someone's work without them asking. Like when people have done that for me, that's Mm. like, that's a Mm. great way to show up as a colleague. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we show up for ourselves though too? How do we show up for ourselves? I'm asking these because I just need them. Yeah, no, these are good questions. So the first thing, how to show up for yourself, you got to set boundaries around your grief. You know, like if you know on the 28th, uh, mm. you don't want to work or like, you know, that you really want to see someone or, or be on the beach now, you know, whatever it is, like you just, you have to commit to holding that time secret. Like I have not worked for a single one of my dead mom's like anniversaries. And, and in later years I thought like, oh, I could work or like we could at least like definitely go for a super fun dinner, you know, whatever, but it just doesn't it just doesn't work. Like my body knows that it's February. My body knows around the time that she died in addition to the day that she died. And there's, there's going to be a meltdown at some point and I just need to rest. So like, like figure out what you need and set boundaries around it and treat the boundaries that you set for your grief, the way you treat the commitments that you make to other people. We're very good at flaking on ourselves. Mm. Mm. Yes. Wow. Yes. But luckily the universe will slap your ass back down every time. Yes. I mean, yes. truly. 100%. Truly. Every time I've left the house this year, something terrible happened. And I really have learned I just needed to stop. Like 2020, I just did not need to leave yeah. the house. Like I needed to be at home in grief instead of acting like things were normal. Because literally every time I left the house, something terrible happened. And I was like, well, stop going yeah. places. Um, yeah. You know, but I will say that uh, conversations mm-hmm. like this really give me hope for the idea that we have each other and we have some a direction to go in. Uh, Marissa, with your with what you faced in your lifetime, what gives you hope? I find hope in my grandparents. Um, you know, I I wrote about this mm. a little bit around inauguration. You know, like I think we often equate hope to optimism and they don't actually mean the same thing. Like I think hope requires discipline. You know, like I think I think we have to decide that we're going to choose hope before it's been realized because like what if if it's already there, like what is it, you know? Um so like right now even though I saw a CNN article that said we technically have had like seven mass shootings in the last 2 weeks. So, you know, the reopening of America means the reopening of gun violence and being afraid to go to the grocery store. Like, that's awesome. What? Uh, yeah. And so still, I, you know, I am choosing hope because I, I look at them, you know, my grandmother, if she, you know, knock on wood, uh, makes it, she'll be 98 in July and my grandfather will be 100. Mm. And I think about what they have lived through and I think about what they've endured and all that they've seen and you know, the fact that not only that they're still here, but like they're still here with a positive attitude, you know, with so much gratitude and with hope for, you know, me and my cousins and our generation and the next generation. I'm like, wow, like if these 
black people who have lived through, you know, the most unimaginable atrocities can still feel like good and hopeful and proud to be Americans. Like I can figure it out. I know mm-hmm. it's wild. Mm. I've got to get there. Uh, and I'm not there. there. Like, just so we're clear, like I, I have spent the last week, you know, radio silent on Instagram because I'm like, I just feel icky. You know, like what, yeah. what are we doing? How are we still here mm. with these AR-15s and, you know, nothing has changed and another round of thoughts and prayers and sharing stories of people who died for no reason. Like it just, it is, it, it's insane. It's completely insane and it's unacceptable. Mm. Um, but I am, I am actively choosing hope in spite of it. Marissa Renee Lee is the CEO of a mission-driven consulting firm called Beacon Advisors. She also worked for the Obama administration, where she was managing director for the My Brother's Keeper Alliance. Marissa is also writing a book right now called Grief is Love. It's about learning to live a joyful life after surviving a significant loss. Marissa, we loved talking to you. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing. Thank you. Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace is an independent podcast. Our senior producer is Kyle Norris. Our production partner is Studio 2B Seattle. This podcast was co-founded in partnership with KUOW Puget Sound Public Radio and the University of Washington. We were inspired by the book Feminist Fight Club by Jessica Bennett. Our music is by Cassia Gordon and our brand design is by Tio. You can find Tio on Instagram at T-E-O dot underscore Dora, which is spelled D-O-R-A. And huge, massive, bananas large. Yes. Big, big thanks to big, big. Phyllis Fletcher, Bree Ripley, Bethany Denton, and Dana Bialik. Thank you all so much. You can get in touch with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at BTSW Podcast or by emailing btswpodcast at gmail.com. And if you love the show, help us make it. Patronize us. Become a patron at patreon.com slash btsw. And as long as you're at your computer or your phone, please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. I would love to explain why this is so important. I don't understand why it's so important. I just know that it really increases visibility for our show when people are searching for something new on Apple Podcasts. So take a moment, write a review on Apple Podcasts, and then tell a friend about our show. Word of mouth is actually the biggest way our audience grows, which is extremely cool. Mm -hmm. And it's the biggest way the fight continues. All right, you guys, keep fighting the good fight. Bye, everyone. Bye, talk to you soon.